Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hey, everyone. We're sitting here today, Melinda Mahiri and I, who is founder and CEO of Yield Street. I am Chief Strategy and Growth Officer at Money 2020, Scarlett Sieber, and... Melinda, thanks for being here. We've talked a, a fair amount over the last few weeks, but I'm really excited about the conversation we're going to have today. Me too. Thanks for having me, Scarlett. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things, um, hey, for those Melinda. of you here and I, who is founder and CEO of Yield Street, I, for those of you who are not aware, Melinda and I did a, uh, a Tech Tuesday interview just this past week. And because of the, the nature of Tech Tuesday, it was actually a rather short interview, but that sparked a ton of other ideas that I had that I said, hey, well, why don't we extend this, get this live, get people engaged? Because you have such a unique background and such a great perspective. And one of the things that really stuck out and resonated with me is that you use the quote, vision without execution is hallucination. That I think speaks volumes. I've met as a former entrepreneur myself, and I've spent so much time looking at the landscape. Of course, we're kind of hardcore in the fintech world, financial services world, but that no words could ring truer, basically. So when you think about back to your, you know, your journey, when you started off, when, when you, you know, you founded Yodel, there was a crisis happening in 2008, right? And you you were helping small businesses at, in a time of need. What were you hearing? What was going on in the world back then? Let's kind of do like a historical perspective for a second. What was happening back in 2008? What were you hearing from small businesses? What was going on? So Scarlett, at every point in evolution, right? Uh, you think about certain key, uh, key milestones, there's always exciting things happening. So let's take our audience back to 2005, 2006, when we actually started Yoda. It was a completely different world. Google had just gone public in 2004 and was a small company, market cap of less than 15 billion, if you can believe that world. There was no iPhone, Facebook and Netflix were small and irrelevant. So it was a, it almost feels like we were in stone ages. But what was happening is, Online advertising was booming, but small businesses was getting left behind. So my co-founder, his dad had car dealerships and he was trying to get them on Google, build a website, get traffic to Google because nobody was looking at yellow pages. And small businesses were too small for any ad agencies to help themselves. And so for us, the whole central premise for Yodel was how do you build a website presence for small businesses and get them new customers from online search and browsing and stuff like that. And if you know, in 2007, iPhone launched and that completely changed the landscape. Facebook took off. 
So mobile and local, uh, mobile and social really converged that local. And so it was a fascinating time. But on the flip side, as you alluded to, we were also entering global financial crisis. And so for us, I think if you think about um, small businesses, that was really the time for us to help them. And so, you know, we had a sales team. We would really like, you know, call up small businesses and really try to get them to build their online presence. And, you know, for us, it was some of the strongest years that we had uh, through the financial crisis. So it was both very gratifying on the business side because we were helping American economy kind of come back and like drive customers into small businesses. But then from a human capital standpoint, hiring a lot of people when there were a ton of layoffs, there were double digit, you know, unemployment. And for me, being an immigrant to this country, it was very gratifying to see that, you know, you're creating jobs in North Carolina and Scottsdale and Austin and, and, and of course, uh, our, our great city of New York. And so uh, it was really a, a, a fascinating time to, to, to really do that. Yeah. As the Yieldtree team just mentioned, first of all, there's so many things I'm going to highlight there. For, for all of you, please, this is a conversation. We're going to be covering Lynn's journey. We're going to be talking about the, the macro things that are happening in our industry and some of the micro things. That's especially in the last week or so. There's a lot that's going to be here. So please ask your questions. I will definitely um, naturally bring them into the conversation that we have set out here. So when you talked about the idea of you know being an immigrant, the, the changing landscape of, of the U.S., and the fact that, I mean, I am such a believer in small businesses being the lifeblood of our economy. I talk a lot about this from the community bank and uh, credit union perspective, but the fact that these smaller institutions, if you think about on both sides, we've got 5,000 credit unions in the US roughly, we got around 5,000 banks. People tend to think of banks as those top 50 names. This is my opinion they don't necessarily do a great job of serving those small businesses. And so when you look at the the lower tail, these, you know, billion dollar, couple billion dollar in AUM institutions, they're the ones who are really focusing on small businesses. And if we think even now, going back to like PPP, they're the ones who really stepped up to the plate and helped them. So it's just, it's so, as you were talking, the idea of, you know, moving, building online presence for these small businesses. I mean, so much is going to ring true to what's happening with this current crisis, but let's stay in the past for a second. So you were growing and scaling a company when the world was kind of going crazy and the U.S. especially was, was going crazy. As a leader, as a founder, how did you keep up the morale with the team? Because I think a lot of these examples and, and lessons we could talk about today. So what did you do as, you know, a lot of people were suffering, you talked about unemployment and everything else. Here you are building and growing. What was that like? How did you kind of keep up the, the team's perspective, get them excited about it? So Scarlett, I think a couple of points here, right? So when you once you think about uh, small business ecosystem, which is so important, but uh, we were at the forefront of that. We almost kind of created that ecosystem. And so if you think about the types of companies that came out of that ecosystem, it was uh, everything from Angie's List, Constant Contact, HubSpot to Shopify, right? Like that kind of you know created that ecosystem. And so I think uh, for the team, one of the most important motivating factors was that we were bringing some fundamental shift in the ecosystem, which was very, very big. And so I think that really was, was something that was a driving force for us. And as we were expanding our team, what we tried to do was the way we inculcated culture is that we moved people from our headquarters to some of our regional offices to seed that office so that you are transferring the core culture of the company along with the people and build it in the local areas. 
and so i think that was uh, that was that was really something that uh, you know we we focused on to kind of you know grow grow and uh, and scale and i think the other other big thing was because uh, market from a market perspective people uh, were looking for jobs and there was unemployment and especially in these cities uh, that were not big hubs known for tech companies so we used to get a lot of attention right from the government officials and other people in like charlotte scottsdale austin because again 10 12 years ago these were not known to be big tech hubs and so for a tech company to move there and create local jobs was really a phenomenal way to kind of uh, think about growing and scaling I, it is so interesting to think about how you know this was like you said 10 10 plus years ago but so much of that rings true now i was just having a conversation with a colleague of mine yesterday about what was happening in charlotte from a a tech and financial services perspective because of course you know now truest having their being one of the biggest banks in the united states and what they're doing in charlotte there's been a lot of activation already in the fintech community there with players like revtech labs and so many others who have their own accelerators and a colleague of mine said he's he's a fintech entrepreneur by the way and said yeah. you know it's so funny you interest you mentioned Charlotte I never knew it was a tech hub but that's actually the tech team that I'm using now is out of Charlotte so you're seeing that those residual components a decade later which I love the other part that I want to highlight on for a second cuz so I am just a a culture fanatic I don't know it's something that I care so much about H- having had you know innovation executive roles in a variety of institutions within financial services there's so much focus i think on the technology which which of course there needs to be but my biggest kind of gripe with all of this is the cultural component so you can have the best strategy maybe your tech needs some updating that's definitely the case but if the culture piece isn't right if people are on board and and, and part of this it's not going to happen so the the concept that you at the core had this culture that was yodel and that was 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 melin's brain and how you guys operated and then you said hey let's go do micro versions of that that's bringing the core but with maybe the own local flavor right so scott still has their own or charlotte's has their own I think that's really crucial because I I ha- I also talk to friends all the time about the idea of if they're joining a seed stage or series A company the culture is one way and then all of a sudden it becomes this bohemoth and then they get out because they're like it's just not the same culture it's not the same people it's just a different vibe and so the idea of of dispersing that team from a geographic perspective is is really interesting to me. So any any other lessons learned back to those yodel days back to the 2008 time that would you know think would be interesting from an entrepreneur's perspective? I think one of the big not even just lessons but fundamentally what what yodel changed in me was uh, as an entrepreneur to have focus on revenue. We are a very strong team that focused on revenue very early on. and you know maybe you call it uh, you know uh, scarlet maybe that's the new york kind of way of life that you know uh, compared to kind of valley entrepreneurs right like we were always focused on revenue and that has really served me well kind of throughout my career so i think that was big one one big lesson is that as we were scaling the company we were really focused on uh, the revenue aspect and the product market fit aspect and we you know didn't raise a ton of venture capital throughout the life history of yodel and the reason for that is our ability to be disciplined so i think that was really very important and then the second thing that was uh, really a big take away for me was going back to culture we really had a very strong you know culture where we introduced a few things in our sales organization we were known as one of the best uh, inside sales teams in the country and the reason for that is we had very innovative uh, very innovative kind of uh, sales plan but also the culture so for example with every new uh, customer win there was this culture of gong you know 
And uh, that was something that is very, uh, very, very important. And then the other aspect was the team dynamics, right? Where you had competitions between teams and things like that. And that really kind of created a very big camaraderie at the company. And that kind of, you know, spilled over going back to another point you made, which was uh, local, how do you kind of infuse local, uh, local uh, culture into it? So for example, our Austin office, we used to offer lunch that had barbecue as, you know, one of the main, you know, you know, kind of items. And that used to be a big kind of cultural draw and like hiring draw and things like that. And again, this was back in the day when, you know, work, lunch at work was not the thing, right? And then of course, like Google popularized it and stuff like that, right? And so uh, it was super interesting to see those dynamics around, you know, sales achievement, but also simple things like, how do you kind of build that camaraderie both on the professional side, but also on, on much more on the human side? Yeah. It's interesting because the, the lessons and things that you implemented as part of your strategy from a bringing small businesses online to the cultural components and the idea of like the team lunches is definitely, it's just, it's so cool to see all these years later that these things are being implemented in many different ways. I was actually having, and we'll have this later, a conversation with Sylvan yesterday around things like stand-up meetings every day. And, and the fact that, you know, that some things happen on the tech side that now is uh, applied and applicable across industries and how it's, it's really not about technology. It's about practices and behavior. So that's kind of an interesting perspective. So let's, let's pull this now a little bit more to the present. So even though there's been so many, you know, correlations between what happened in 2008 and now, so we're back here it's 2021 we're depending on where we are in the world obviously this this crisis is still very front and center but in the united states we're kind of a little bit on the tail end hopefully of it during this time so let's you know think about yield street for a second the last year has been in a, there's been a huge inflection point for for you guys and crazy growth right so i remember when i was talking to your your team and we talked a little bit about this last time with tech tuesday that i think from you know, up until 20, April, 2021, that you've seen over 250% growth in terms of investment requests and new investors, which is crazy. So here's a, a common example today now of people moving to that digital world. In this case, we're talking about investment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what, how, what are you seeing? I mean, from a yield street perspective, but then if we go out a little bit from a macro level, let's talk about like the digitization of the world and how people are moving to digital and response and kind of being forced to because of COVID. Yeah. So I think uh, Scarlett, uh, uh, listen, I think the trend around digitization, in my opinion, started uh, almost a decade ago, right? Like if you think about last decade was really the decade of tech. And what I mean by that is 2010, there were only three tech companies that were the top 10 companies by market cap, which were finance companies. Exiting the, oh, sorry, where tech companies exiting the decade, seven out of the top 10 companies in the world by market cap are tech companies. And what really happened in the last decade? Mobile. That changed the game for everybody. So you could find love, hail a cab, and uh, book a restaurant, find friends, do whatever you wanted, right? Book your travel. And that fundamentally changed how people lived their life. That shifted consumer behavior. So obviously finance is a little, you know, always lagging and, and what you do with, with money 2020 and like a lot of this thought leadership type things is always pushing the, pushing the envelope, right. And in, in terms of innovation, 
So mobile changed the game. And that really, you know, started the, the, the revolution that we are seeing in the last four or five years. So for example, I'll give you, bringing it back to Yield Street, right? We launched our, our mobile app, which we were the first alternative platform to do so almost three or four years ago now. One of our first investment requests came from the middle of Lake Michigan. So the reason I'm giving that example is, think about a fundamental shift in how people think about financial services which are typically thought to be like, hey, you have to go to a bank or go to a financial institution or go to a financial advisor. So now you have people investing thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, maybe sitting in the middle of a boat with their grandson or their son fishing. And when we launched an investment, they had ability to get educated, learn about that investment and invest. So in my view, I think financial services is on the cusp. This decade is going to be the golden age of fintech. And uh, we are already seeing some of those things happening. And we're going to speak a little bit about what those innovations are. But I think, you know, uh, I am super excited with regards to how digital uh, digitalization has happened. And then my last point, which is what you ended it with, was COVID. COVID was the accelerant to digitization of so many things. And financial services is going to be no different. And you're seeing some phenomenal numbers just in terms of what things people are doing differently today versus even a year, year and a half ago, you know? So, so I think, yes, COVID was like really that, that kind of catalyst, if you will. Right. Listen, this is, this is kind of an interesting analogy, right? Obviously it has devastated the world because of the, the, the nature of what it has, ha- what has happened. But if you think about the virality component, right. In a positive way, it has accelerated the digitization and been a catalyst for that digitization because we are, you know, just living a, a, a very different life and a very different way to communicate with people. You are so right. I, there's, God, there's so many points that I want to hit on there. I was trying to find because I wanted to make sure the stat was right. So COVID, like you said, it's one of those like totally opposite things. And so the, the devastation and things that have happened are, are terrible, of course. But because of COVID, because of this kind of lockdown, I've seen, especially from the financial service lens for a second, you've seen this a crazy amount of acceleration. So where most industries had, had trouble, fintech accelerated because of this. And there were huge subsets of the population, right? Like if you think about... <sighs> You go to boomers for a second, right? And they, one of the reasons back to this idea of these smaller institutions and community banks, like they've always served them very well because they're the type that really love to go to their local branch and still have those one-on-one conversations because of COVID they couldn't. So they had to move to digital. But with that, my thought there is a fewfold. I mean, A, we've seen across the board, it shows that they're, they're there. Some of them will still use those, those in-branch experiences for some specific things, but for the, for the everyday stuff where maybe they'd be getting on the phone and calling, which I don't know if you all are aware of this, but the number of call centers for people to call about their balances still is crazy. Like it's a really big thing. So the fact that, you know, now through COVID or whatever else, they've got comfortable with these digital things. Now they don't need to make that call anymore. They can just go look online. I had, I was talking to the team earlier. I had a personal example of this. So not to try to call her out, but my, my mother-in-law started using Venmo as in response to COVID, you know, nearly 70 years old, have, you know, a great group of friends. And they were talking about doing some virtual um, event together. And there was an exchange of money. It was like a hundred bucks. So she, she got on Venmo. I set her up with Venmo a while ago, just kind of like, let it go. And then she said to me, Oh, you know, whatever her name was, Karen, I sent I, you know, I sent Karen money, but she's saying she didn't get it. So she's like, so she's like, I've tried three times now, Scarlett, but Karen's saying she's not getting the money. I go look. Her name was something as literal as like Karen Smith. Of course, there's like 
hundreds of Karen Smiths on Venmo. So she sent money to the wrong person. And so there, there is this whole thing about, you know, with this move to digitization, I believe that there needs to be a level two of, of education around what's happening because it's, it's great getting them on there, but it's, there, there needs, there's kind of sometimes a lack of what's happening, but the, the other side of that too, just kind of naturally through that is the fact that once you got them on there, they're now used to these new behaviors. How do you expand that? And I think one key thing that I took away from what you said, you talked about the, the people in Michigan sitting on his boat and doing an investment there, it goes back to convenience, right? And I think this is something that the incumbents are trying to do and just having a really hard time with, they say convenience, but it's not a convenient experience. It has to naturally integrate into their life. And I think that's one thing that, that you've really prioritized and the team has prioritized is making sure that that happens. So it's, it's kind of crazy. So just because I gave you kind of a personal example, I'm curious because you've said a lot of things, by the way, that I feel like you're Nostradamus and you'll see what I mean in a few weeks here, because you mentioned the idea that this is a decade for fintech. There'll be some uh, stuff coming out in the next few weeks that I'm definitely going to tag you on because you've said it here first. But when you think about this move to digitization, where do you see the risks? You know, how do you think about it from that perspective? Because obviously there's a ton of opportunity, but where do we need to be thinking a little bit about more from the risk side? I think uh, risk uh, really depends on what are really the, the, the ways people are engaging, right? And so, for example, if you think about getting millennials engaged in the stock market is a great thing. And, you know, apps like Robinhood, Acons just uh, yesterday announced they're going public. It's a great, uh, great craft is an investor in us and in Acons. So great to see some financial services wins. But I think if you think about uh, what they're trying to do is just really popularize investing with the, with the younger uh, generations, right? And you uh, said this, that boomers are sitting on a lot of wealth that's going to get transferred over the next decade to generation X, Y, and Z, right? And it's in the tunes of you know, almost $30 trillion, 30 to $40 trillion. So there's just a lot of wealth there. So you have to obviously think about risk from that standpoint. And risk comes in uh, going back to another point you made, which is education. So for example, what happened with GameStop and AMC, and it continues to happen for the last six months, right? And you have people that would, have, would do really well, but there are going to be you know, a lot majority of people that may not do well. And you see it in online forums where you know, the people say, oh, I took my parents' retirement and put it in AMC and now I'm left holding the bag. So that thing, uh, so those type of behaviors, you really have to be very responsible as a financial technology company. The other aspect of it is thinking about uh, newer technologies. So, so crypto is another example. Right. And how do you, you know, how should you think about it, you know, and uh, with, with the type of adoption it has seen in the last 18 uh, months, that's another way, like, you know, how do you kind of really, again, comes down to how, what's the education that you have to, to really think about. So at Yield Street, as you know, we are really passionate about kind of content creation and education and, and things like that. And, and we feel that, uh, 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 educated consumer is the best consumer. So I think uh, that's really where I feel that, uh, you know, you have to think through through risk and education and how they kind of go ha- hand in hand in terms of like really making sure that the consumer knows, you know, what they're really kind of interacting with and, and uh, getting into. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to get to crypto later because I really want your thoughts on some of the stuff that's happened with the volatility in the last few weeks. But um, on the idea of the educational component, it's, you know, I think part of it, I've been, so I've been in financial services now for some time. I did not see myself going here, by the way, but here I am because there's so much amazing things that are happening in this space. It is crazy to me that 
people, seasoned executives, veterans in financial services still have like uncomfortability when it comes to investing. And I think that there's almost this like taboo of the fact that, well, if you're in financial services, of course, you know what it is, you know, you know, you know about your investing strategy. So they're, they're afraid to talk about it, which is why these educational components, I think are so crucial and especially in a way that is easy, easily digestible and understandable. So the other big point that you made though, I have to get to is that the idea, the idea of the transfer of wealth, right? So you said, you know, 30 trillion bucks, that's a lot of money coming from a, a former banker's hat. Something that we've focused a lot on uh, is the idea of attracting the millennials, attracting the Gen Z. One of the things that started happening was, well, A, there was a lot of challenges as to why that was not an easy play. And that's why some of these neobanks and everyone else came and kind of ate that lunch. But one of the other things that started happening was, and I was in a lot of these rooms is, let's be real, these millennials and Gen Zs don't have money. They're not profitable customers for us. The key was what you just talked about though. So maybe not now, but if you win their hearts and minds now, they got a ton of money coming their way in this, you know, this next wave, which I think is super important. And the other thing I would love to get your perspective on, because you you seem to be always ahead of the the game when it comes to the behaviors of whether it be consumers or small businesses. So I will speak myself here as a millennial. I know you got some of them on your team too. Um We've been through a lot, right? When just getting out of college around there, there's a whole thing around, around geriatric millennials. So I don't exactly fit there. I'm a little bit below that, but close enough, right? So getting out around college around that last financial crisis, here we are again in another crisis. You've got all this stuff going on. You know, you have, you talked about games up. There's so much that gives pause and hesitancy there. I'm just curious when you think about these next generations, whether it be millennials or the, the one after Gen Z, how do you think about their behaviors and how they interact with and, and um, connect with their money? Listen, I think uh, it is going to be digitally native, digitally first. There is no doubt about that. So think about what Fidelity did last week, right? Fidelity announced that now parents can issue trading accounts for their kids, which is what companies like GoHenry and a bunch of companies are, are in that whole space are doing, right? Which is to uh, really impart financial education. And I think fundamentally, my, my belief really is that even curriculums today don't include this, but high school curriculums should absolutely have financial literacy and economics. Uh, some high schools do have economics, but financial literacy classes in middle and high school, because Today's Gen Gen Z and even younger kids, they're technology first, right? And today they're holding the phones at the age of three, four, five. And so fundamental shift that's going to happen is it's it's already happening. So how can we not change uh, and really kind of, and I think they're going to be smarter uh, consumers, right? So, So my son, this was like probably three, four years ago. His first trade on Robinhood uh, was uh, the stock was Lululemon, you know, and uh, it was it was super interesting. And you know, we were we were in Europe in the summer, and he said, "Hey, uh, his his thesis was like, hey, summer people are out and about; they're going to have a great quarter and things like that." Like, so you could just see his, you know, this guy, you know, this person is like eleven at the time; he was like eleven and twelve. It's like, oh, like to thinking through that process was so so interesting, right? So that's going to happen. The second thing, uh, you know, uh, really that you should think about is what you just said, right? Which was all of these generations are inheriting a lot of wealth over the next decade or two decades, right? So that investor education is going to help you 
to keep those customers longer term, even though they may not be profitable now. So now, listen, shameless plug for Yield Street, right? So what we tried to do is we went the opposite side of the spectrum when we started the company, which is we said, hey, we want to go after accredited investors first because they don't, they also don't have access at their level. And they are a harder to reach consumer than a typical younger generation, right? And if we can make it work with them, then we can pull back the curtain, right? And so that's what we did is we went after uh, the accredited investor you know, uh, population, which is still about 13, 14 million people in this country. And we've been very successful, very uh, doing that. And so if you think about traditionally the types of alternative assets that are available on, on Yield Street, would be available only to people who are 65, 67 years of median age. We have now pulled that curtain back to 41 on our platform, which I think is super fascinating, right? So it supports the theory that you have is that, listen, our view is that if we get this demographic over the next 10 years, they're going to stay with us, you know? And, and that I think really also, you know, jives really well is that now we open some of our products to the millennials as well, right? And so the, the thesis really is that we want to expand and service almost 50 million consumers in the next five to 10 years, like as they take their financial journey. So you hit on a few key points there. So we, we're getting a little bit into access, right? Because that's, that's yeah. part of it. Um, even thinking back to the questions that you answered in the Tech Tuesday in terms of inspiration, you mentioned some neobanks and some things around there. Access is a big thing that I think fintechs more broadly are focusing on. There's, you know, this next generation of neobanks looking, you, you have the, you have the first ones with the simples and the move-ins. Of course, I'm going to have to have a, a preference there because we, when I was at BBVA, we acquired simple. And then you get the next generations with the Varos and the chimes and all of these other ones. And now we're seeing that next iteration with the daylights for LGBTQ. You got the first boulevards for, you know, the black community and the, the Greenwoods. What do you, just more broadly, not maybe specifically about neobanks, but what do you think more broadly about this access component with the fintech landscape more broadly? What are you thinking when you think through that with what's happening in the space? I think it is super interesting because financial services in general is quite fragmented, right? There is a different type of consumer looking for a very different type of product. And it's not just about wealth management, including core banking and lending. Right. And so there are different ways to kind of skin the cat. So the question really becomes, are you looking at kind of volume or are you looking at impact? Like that's kind of how I think about it. And when you think about volume, it's like broadly speaking, financial inclusion is the underlying theme of all that. Right. So when you think about challenger banks, this thing, OK, traditional banks are not leeching this, uh, you know, this consumer. Can we do that in a digitally first manner? You mentioned a very important component earlier in our conversation, which is the role of community banks. Right. And how they reach, you know, uh, not only small business communities, but rural areas, in, you know, in our country. So I think that aspect of volume where you have tons of people adopting the, the, the technology or, or a new way of doing things is super interesting. The other aspect of it is also impact. Right. And when I say by impact, are you what type of impact you have? So at least we speak a lot about what impact we are having. Right. And, and the, the idea really is that we are pro providing you with income generating products to complement your other investing uh, portfolio. And you're getting your interest on a monthly quarterly basis, and that can help fuel your life's ambition. So whether you're saving for vacation or a second car or a, a house or whatever may be the case, can this kind of fuel your uh, 
uh, you know, life's ambition. And, and that's kind of, you know, what I say is that access kind of leads to this whole concept of self-driving money, which is do it for me. So what Robo Advisors did for kind of ETFs and index fund industry, can we now do that for all and, and all types of assets, right? And self-driving money is that, okay, I'm investing, but I'm also getting my returns. And can that return fuel some of my life's passions, right? So, so it's a very, very interesting, uh, it's a very, very interesting uh, component, which is, uh, um, uh, which is really kind of tying the education piece to access piece and then to the, okay, what's the net, uh, net, you know, like the net impact on the consumer? Like, uh, is the consumer really benefiting from it? Spot on there. I, the idea that self-driving money is such an interesting concept because we talked a little bit about the educational gap, which I am going to, I do see a question here that I want, that is related to education that I want to share with you from the audience. But um, just quickly on that, that concept of the self-driving money. So it's important to be aware of what's happening. You're not blindly investing without understanding the components of what you're doing and the potential impact it could have, especially like we're talking with this big transfer of wealth that's coming. But I will speak for myself like this. And I think there are many others. I want to understand the, the fundamentals, but I don't want to be checking in on this every single day. I don't got time for that. We all have too much going on. So the idea of like, you have a maybe high level thesis, you understand the overarching components, and then you just let it work for you, I think is, is one that definitely resonates. So, so quickly, I'm going to read this because I want to make sure I get it right. This is from Keisha. Uh, what are some examples advice you can share on how to approach the educational component? What have you seen that have, has worked and not worked? Great question. So as I was telling you, we are very passionate. So our dream, and we are not there yet, our dream at Yale Street is, can we create an experience where Tech Talks meets uh, Khan Academy meets Investopedia? So Tech Talks is like just inspirational aspect of it. Khan Academy is making complex things simple. And then Investopedia is about delivering them in the most easy to, you know, just uh, easy to... Uh, access manner, right? And so that's really the dream. So uh, what really has worked, in my opinion, in the last, I would say last five years or so, is just blogs and, and contents that you know, distill complex things uh, in a very simple manner. So think about the role of Nerd Wallet. Think about, uh, you know, podcasts like uh, Bigger Pockets and things like that. That has changed because, you know, traditionally Wall Street operated on research reports and, and all of these very complex uh, documents now bloggers are like distilling that, you know, that's, I think is really working. Scarlett, what you're doing is phenomenal. It's a phenomenal service. Like, you know, just to be able to talk about these type of topics, that's really working. And so how do you kind of, in today's world, which is like, we all have ADD, we consume content very differently. How can you kind of create things which are webinar, short form articles, long form articles, info, uh, infographics, do it in a manner that can reach consumers faster. So in my opinion, like that's really is working and we should continue to kind of evolve and, and develop that. Um, and then obviously you have seen, uh, you know, blocks can take various shapes and, and Reddit really has kind of taken it to the next level where there is a lot of transparency and then is the wisdom of crowds, right? Like that's, that's you know, obviously creating uh, certain outcomes and behaviors and things like that, which I think I think is also uh, also super interesting because that is driving transparency and accountability into the system. Oh man, you could not have teed up my next thought better here. So so th thank you for that because we you 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 hit it right at the end because I want to be mindful of your time. We don't have that much time left, and we cannot end without going into what's been happening for the last few weeks, which goes into all this idea of bloggers, other ways to digest information in a meaningful 
way that connects that like resonates because it's authentic and real. Now, the downside of that potentially, so you brought in Reddit too, right? So obviously we know the impact that they had with, uh, with the game, you know, the GameStop piece and there's some other stuff that they've done there as well. What are your thoughts about, okay, the news is going nonstop about our friend Elon. I wish he was my friend. He's not my friend, Elon Musk, right? Um, and the fact that the influence that he has and what he's utilizing his social platform to, to do in the, in the volatility of crypto. So just when you think about that, what, do you, what is your take on the volatility of crypto and the impact that social has on that? I mean, should someone like Elon Musk be able to impact the markets that way. Like, I just, I'm curious how you're thinking about this. So Scarlett, I think this is a a pretty serious uh, question and serious topic. I feel, uh, so let me uh, address, uh, you know, the volatility of the crypto crypto market. So listen, I think if you asked me the same question last May, my answer would have been, listen, my views on crypto are depending upon the phases of moon or, you know, on which side of the bed I wake up because I don't know, you know, someday I'm very bullish, the other day I'm not at all bullish, right? Uh, I think where I stand today is digital currencies are here to stay. There is no doubt about that. They have a lot of applicability in how uh, we could lead our life and interact with financial products uh, in a faster, better manner, both, mostly from an infrastructure and just like, you know, the the, the movement of money. Uh, so I think they're here to stay. I think... Uh, Generally, all currencies are not the same. So I think consumers need to really, really understand that and make sure that uh, they, they know what they're getting into. So, so really, I think the top, uh, you know, I would even say five, not even 10, are some, something that has a wide adoption and are continue to adopt. So I think that is going to be uh, something that, you know, we should think about. I think the applications of blockchain can also drive digital currency adoption, right? An application of blockchain is going to happen. By the way, blockchain is going to have a massive impact. We should probably do another episode on just like blockchain's impact on financial services. I think it could be fascinating because there's a lot of work being done there and I'm a big believer in that. And then finally, your question around uh, impact of uh, impact of social social media. Uh, I think it's a, it's a double-edged sword. We have to be really, really careful. And I think my general view is that Financial matters are pretty serious, you know, serious matters. And what I said about like GameStop is applicable in this context also. Listen, lot of this is people are putting fiat currency into buying these things, right? And it has real impact on people that may not really understand or may not have the wherewithal to bear those shocks to their system. So I think we should take it very seriously with regards to what how we are using social media to uh, to really uh, influence and talk about, uh, especially things that are volatile in nature and, and can have deep swings. So, so I, I would just all, you know, caution your audience to be very careful about truly when it comes to money, the money is very real. So really take a step back and like think about what you could do. When I'm thinking about angel investing, I'll sometimes get uh, a deck that will say, hey, Sequoia is in it and Excel and this and that, like big VC firms are in it. I always can get carried away by that, right? But I have to have my own thesis because like, listen, they are great firms, you know, obviously we all know that, but they have hundred other investments. You don't know, you know, uh, how this fits into their overall investment thesis. And so I cannot peg my decision just for the fact that Sequoia is in this deal, because, you know, obviously it's a very different model, right? So I would like urge your audience to be really very careful when they think about crypto and how it would impact their own kind of wallet, you know? Yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting because I I have a very large family on my father's side and they not, none of them can 
clearly uh, articulate what it is that I do. They don't understand this world, but they know that I'm in finance and fintech. So everyone is coming to me about crypto. Now it's like, oh, I'm getting into Dogecoin. I'm doing this. What do you think about this? I'm like, I, I, on, I cannot give you feedback on this stuff because it's just, I don't want it to be tied to me. Like you have to make your own decisions. I don't know enough about what else you got going on. If, if you have 10,000 right. savings and you're putting all your money in there, no, you should not do that. But it's like, I, you know, I can't sit here and go. It's just so interesting because I get on some of these family threads and to hear and they're like scarlet you're the one in finance give us your thoughts i'm like my thought is don't put it all in one basket that's what i can tell you you each have your own unique thesis is i can't say you know collectively do this or do that so there there's a lot to think about there last question while we while we have you it's going to be another big one so so sorry about that but we are recovering most of most of the world obviously we are very aware of the the, the countries that are still very much suffering but recover from this pandemic and there's a outside of crypto you've got potential housing crash crash and shortages you've got inflation you made a bold statement. I will tell you that I agree, as it does in this case, Money 2020, um, about the future of, of fintech and fintech being a big move for, for this decade. But from your perspective, with all of these other kind of volatilities around us, how does fintech continue this like crazy positive upward trajectory? Listen, I think uh, for us in this ecosystem, Scarlett, I'm a firm believer that you really have to focus on uh, you know core processes that you're you know impacting right and fintech obviously is a very broad term so it can mean anything from you know financial inclusion which we spoke about all the way to kind of wealth management which we also spoke about but also banking as a service right so are you reading re, re, you know reaching the right audience like is it easy for me to enable certain banking services and so in my view the way fintech continues to do this is to not really focus on short-term trends where, you know, is there a crash coming in the market? Asset values are so high. What about inflation? There is so much money in the system. Ultimately, it's all about like, hey, the convenience thing that you mentioned earlier in the conversation, right? Am I like improving your use case or your life just because, uh, because of use of technology, right? And is that really kind of been added to my life? So if we continue to focus on that, I feel that uh, the future of uh, fintech is very bright. And I am, I am a big proponent that we are uh, entering the golden age of fintech, 2020 to 2030. That's, that's really going to be a huge, uh, you know, uh, huge time for us. And I think it's the right time. Uh, and the reason why I'm saying it's very ripe is because if you think about the last 10, 15 years, we speak a lot about fintech, but outside of kind of, uh, you know, digital currency and, and blockchain and digital payments, there has not really been true innovation in fintech, right? And, and so now you're beginning to see banking as a service, different types of uh, investing apps. Uh, I actually... Uh, not to digress here, but I got a got, got a, uh, a, a, a an angel proposal where uh, the company what they're trying to do is you walk into Whole Foods, they will let you buy whole one dollar of whole Whole Foods stock because you're you know using Whole Food you know as 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 a as a utility. So there are interesting things happening, and they will all become mainstream in my view in the next decade. So I'm super excited about that. Love it. And that goes exactly into convenience and usability and connecting, making your, you know, self-driving money, right? There's a whole concept of you, yeah. they know by your behaviors, what you're doing. So you're, you're supporting those businesses. And so why not support them from your investment thesis? Oh, so many great things here. We definitely need to have a chat around blockchain uh, just to synthesize the end points to around the banking as a service. I mean, I think that 
for those who are not deeply embedded in the space and you start getting into infrastructure, it's like the most unsexy, boring stuff, but it's so fundamentally important for the future of our industry. And I am, I'm in total agreement with you that this will be the golden age of FinTech. Oh, Melinda, so many key takeaways here. Um, thinking through the past, the fact that you want to make sure your culture is, is, is moving throughout the organization, the strategy around that, how um, you can make great situations happen from challenging times like pandemics or financial crashes. And the digital is the key to the future with the right educational component in a way that is authentic and meaningful. Thank you. Thank you all for watching. I'm sure if you have other questions, you can reach out to the Yale Street team. They'll be happy to answer. If you have questions for Melinda and I more broadly around this crazy world that we're living in, we'll get to that too. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.